Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. This is part two, so if you've not seen part one, you can go back and watch that afterwards, if you're live or later, um, whenever. But this is part two where we're looking at the Protestant Reformation with Professor Alec Reary of um, Gresham College lecture fame, for those of you who kind of recommended your content to me in the first place. Um, so today we're just going to be picking up where we kind of left off in the story. So we talked about uh, Martin Luther and the initial kind of seeds of the Reformation. And then we talked a bit about Calvinism in Geneva. And now I think we're going to talk about some of the other kind of elements that are a part of this thing that we call the Reformation. So what's going on in England at the time and Great Britain? Uh, well, the English story is um, a, a kind of weird tangent to a, to a lot of this. And England is, is a country that never should have had a Reformation. Um, it's it's you know, one of the countries which is the, one of the most centrally governed um, anywhere in Europe at the time. It's got a very powerful monarchy. Um, it's also got experience of dealing with heresy. The so-called Lollard movement has been kind of grumbling away in the background for the last um, last century or so without ever getting anywhere near any kind of, of real influence. Um, and the church is in unusually good shape. Um, you know, it's 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 well disciplined. It's well led. Um, this isn't a place which is is beset by the obvious signs of corruption, which helped to win Luther uh, a hearing in, in 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 large parts of of Europe. So, I mean, what happens is that some English scholars um, and merchants, you know, folks who've got continental contacts pick up some interest in the new ideas in the 1520s. So there's a, there's, you know, a flurry of activity in England's two universities, particularly in Cambridge. Um, and then pretty fast, the English church and state catches wind of this. It's heresy hunting machine grinds into action um, and it starts suppressing this this movement and there are you know a dozen or so executions over the over the course of the late 1520s 1530s um and really that should have been the end of the story and and those executions um, sorry are they um approximately to do with like people translating the bible into english or what what's going on there i mean just the, briefly sure okay i mean these these are these are people who are being executed um under english law for the crime of heresy um, and so this is a is, is, is a kind of hybrid state between um, secular law, which authorizes it, but and, and and ultimately carries out the executions. But it's 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 investigated by the bishops um, using um, the, the, the structures of ecclesiastical. So it's a, um, in, in legal terms, it's a um, it's it's a kind of strange crossover. Um, and what that means is that they are being found to be um, persistent in willful error, despite being corrected for those 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 grave errors. Um, that is not so much um, asserting that the that the Bible should be translated into into English. That is making an English translation of the Bible is illegal. Um, England is really the only major jurisdiction in which vernacular translations of the Bible are illegal in the late Middle Ages. Um, but more significantly, it's for holding specific Protestant doctrines. So justification by faith, a 
alone, denying transubstantiation, um, the, 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 the classic Catholic doctrine of the mass, um, denying the supremacy of the Pope, this you know, series of, of, of other core doctrinal assertions that Protestants are making, um, denying the existence of purgatory is a big one. And so these folks are being being rounded up, and when they refuse to recant their errors, they are given a chance to save their lives by renouncing their, their errors. Um, those who refuse to do so ultimately face execution. This is a, a pretty well-established heresy-hunting method. The English bishops are a bit surprised that these new heretics turn out to be a lot more stubborn than the ones they're used to dealing with. Um, the long-standing English heretics, you know, largely you, you, you arrest them um, and, and, and put the frighteners on them and they'll give in. Um, this lot are, are rather more willing to go to the stake, which is a bit unnerving. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that's, that's how the system works. And if it hadn't been for the fact that at, right at this moment, King Henry VIII had got himself into a really difficult fight with the Pope, out of which there is no good way, um, then that would have been the end of the story. But, you know, for reasons that are, are, are all too well known, um, Henry comes up against one of the very few undisputed powers of the papacy, that is its authority over matrimonial law, um, finds himself for complicated reasons um, wanting to challenge those powers head on rather than try and find a clever technical legal way through it as his advisors are urging him to um, and ends up really painting himself into a corner such that by the you know late 1530 early 1531 he really has convinced himself not just that his marriage um, his, his first marriage to Catherine of Aragon was never legal in the first place um, because she'd previously been married to his to his brother. Um, but also he becomes genuinely you know, convinced in the core of his being that the papacy which had authorized that marriage is therefore demonstrating itself to be illicit and to have no authority. And he becomes profoundly convinced, I mean, this is the, the really becomes the heart of his religion from here on, that he himself, Henry Tudor, has been appointed by God as the supreme head on earth of the Church of England, immediately under Christ, and that anybody who refuses to accept that authority or who wants to insist that the Pope, this, this foreign bishop, has some authority in England, um, is a traitor, um, is, is trying to usurp his powers. And what is it that kind of instigates that change in? Because previously, I mean, he hasn't he been called like a defender of the faith or something by the by the Pope? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, he 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 he's very against Luther um, and his doctrine of justification by faith, in particular that doctrine, because it sounds to him like a license to commit sin. Um, and Henry's very keen on punishment for sin, um, not. So much if it's his own sin, but certainly as far as his subjects are concerned, he likes a, you know, a, a, a nice, clear system of, of, of reward and punishment. Um, so the Protestant doctrine, with all this emphasis on free forgiveness, he finds, finds very unsettling. 
Plus, he's very loyal to the traditional sacramental structures of the Catholic Church. And the book that he writes, you know, writes with some considerable assistance, but nevertheless, it's his project um, against Luther. Is is a you know, it is called "I Assert That There Are Seven Sacraments." It's a defense of the of the sacraments, um, and it is effectively negotiated in advance that if he writes this book, he's going to get a title from the Pope. Um, he's been unhappy for a long time that the King of France has a papal title, the King of Spain has a papal title, King of England doesn't have one. You know, he feels that that that, that he deserves something at the same level of dignity. Um, yeah, he's always been a king who has been keen to to take a stand on his own authority, although that's hardly unusual for kings. Um, it's this particular dispute um, about his marriage and his absolute refusal to budge on that, the way that it seems to him to reveal this deeper flaw in, 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 in the papacy's authority. It happens quite suddenly. Um, you know, we can we can spot the point at which he tips over from just pursuing an argument about the marriage to having, as it seems to him, his eyes open. I mean, it's been compared to a religious conversion, and I I, I think that's pretty pretty persuasive. And he just develops this story through through scripture. Like he is that it, like he, does he kind of have a perspective shift in how he's doing theologies? Um, I mean, I've, I've slightly struggled to describe what he's doing as theology. Um, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm sure. not, not that much of a fan of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there is a, that, that kind of, of, of breakthrough in it. And certainly for him, scripture is important. And reading the works of some of the early Protestants and listening to some of the people around him who have re who've been reading them, not least his intended next wife and Berlin um, is is important in pushing him towards this um, he develops this I mean almost kind of charmingly naive conviction that the doctrine of his royal supremacy is so self-evident in scripture that if the Bible is published in English and, and, and freely set forth and his subjects read it, then they will all be convinced of it too. And he becomes genuinely dismayed later, you know, a little later on when, when the Bible is published in English and it turns out that not everybody reads it the same way he does. Um, but for all that he becomes an enthusiast for the English Bible, um, he's never a Protestant. Um, at, at best, he forms a kind of alliance of convenience with them. Although he still profoundly disagrees with their doctrines in a number of areas, the one thing that they and he absolutely have in common is that they they they, they all hate the Pope um, and want to get rid of, of papal authority. And for them, that's enough. They're willing to go along with this. You know, he's getting rid of the Pope. He's publishing an English Bible. You know, they can cross the fingers about the rest and hope that it'll come round. For him, he's willing to work with these folks because as much as he may dislike some of their doctrines, on this one key issue, for him, the decisive religious point, they are on his side. And many of the other folks in his church who go along with his vendetta with the Pope, he doesn't really trust them. And so one of the crucial points of this comes, you know, just as this his, his, his campaign 
this, this conflict with the Pope is kind of um, coming to a climax in 1532, the long-serving Archbishop of Canterbury, William Wareham, dies. Um, Wareham had backed the king's campaign over the divorce, but is becoming increasingly uneasy about the way this is turning into a war against the church, showing alarming signs of listening to his conscience. Um, when he dies, the king is absolutely clear that the new person he wants in that role as archbishop has got to be someone he can absolutely trust, whose commitment to opposing the papacy is heartfelt and unquestioned. And so he does the, the only thing he can. He appoints a convinced Protestant, um, this you know, relatively obscure churchman, Thomas Cranmer. Um, who the king had come to work with um, over the past couple of years and who he's, he's, he's come to develop a deep personal trust in. And so Cranmer, to his own and everybody else's surprise, is plucked out of obscurity um, and, and made Archbishop of Canterbury because the king absolutely needs somebody in that role who, when he's called on to make the final judgment about the king's marriage, is going to make the right decision. And that's a kind of symbol of the the, the deal that he ends up making. Um, he, by putting Cranmer and others like him in positions of power, so that he's got allies against the papacy, he ends up bringing people who are serious about their Protestantism into the heart of the English establishment. And when Henry himself dies uh, in, in January 1547. Many of those Protestants whom he's promoted, people who he's brought along because ultimately they hate the Pope as much as he does, they're still there. And they're the ones who then fully take over um, and so, so, end up setting England on uh, a, a much more kind of straightforwardly and unambiguously Protestant path. So what does this... Um... English Protestant theology look like then? I mean, what are the kind of views that someone like um, Cranmer would hold? You know, it, how does it compare and contrast to maybe the views of like Luther and Calvin? Um, it's, a, it's a good question and it's a bit of a moving target. Um, and I don't want to get too too deeply into the into the weeds on this because this, you're 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 now kind of getting into the era I did my own PhD research on years ago. So you know, if I if, if if okay, I dive yeah. too deep, it's like kind of grab me by the back of my, back of my neck and pull okay. me out of here. Um, in the 1530s, in the, that sort of first phase of the English Reformation, the, there's a, a sense amongst the, the Protestants in the regime that time is ultimately on their side, that the king is moving in their direction, making many of the changes they want to make, legalizing the English Bible, he's getting rid of monasteries, um, you know, this, they, they think that, that even if he doesn't fully agree with them yet, they can work on him, um, you know, patience and, 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 and things are going to go their way. Then in 1539-40 there on, there's a real change of tempo. Um, Thomas Cromwell, the king's chief minister, the one who's, who's really the sort of legal architect of, of, the, of the, that first phase of the English Reformation, of course, who's, you know, Hillary Mantel has sort of brought back to our um, our, our, our consciousness. Um, he's executed, um, and there's a sense then that ah, actually, this king is not really on our side. 
Um, we may be able to work on him, but you know he's 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 a bit of a loose cannon. Um, and especially after a, a, a couple of surges of, of of persecution and repression of Protestantism in one in fifteen forty three, another round in, in fifteen forty six, a lot of English Protestants, and this includes Archbishop Cranmer himself, actually come to to the conviction that the the kind of moderate patient approach work with the government which is much more aligned with a sort of lutheran style of, 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 of reform um is no longer tenable um and they find themselves embracing the more politically aggressive and in some ways more doctrinally purist um ideas coming out of um of, of switzerland and southern germany They're a bit anachronistic at this point to call them Calvinist because Calvin doesn't really have that, that level of reputation there. Um, but that, you know, that, that world who, of people who are wanting to keep the church more separate from the state with its, with its own power, um, and who are also wanting to, to, to clear out the, the remains of Catholic sacramental doctrine much more thoroughly. And it's just at this point when the English Protestantism becomes radicalized in this way, it's just at this point that the king dies and they end up inheriting the keys to the kingdoms. I, you know, I really think if things had been different by a few months, we could have had a different sort of result. But it means that the Protestant clique that end up taking power in early 1547 in the name of the boy king, Edward VI, are a Protestant clique who by then have, have become pretty much Capital R reformed Protestants, what we what we would um, quickly move on to call Calvinists, um, and just to reinforce that, there's a, a political crisis on the continent at the time. Um, a number of the Protestants of that um, style, particularly, find themselves um, having to flee their homes. Um, Cranmer says, you know, come here, um, and ends up staffing the, his, his newly reformed English church with a series of the, you know, some of, some of the great theologians of, of, of Protestant Europe. It's a real coup for him to get some of these people. Um, and, you know, they arrive to this country, which is a bit of a backwater, um, and put its theologians sort of gently but firmly through a, a, a quick boot camp in, 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 in Protestant theology. And it means that by the, by the end of Edward's reign, by 1552, 1553, um, the identity of the English church with that reformed camp um, is, is pretty clear. There is then, of course, the whole incident of, incident, um, episode of, of Queen Mary's accession, England returns to Catholicism in 1553. If she had lived, that would probably have worked. Um, you know, there's been lots of debate over that in the last few years, but she doesn't. She dies, um, dies childless five years later for complicated reasons of you know the dynastic and international power politics. Um, the throne ends up passing to um, Henry's surviving daughter, Elizabeth, who's you know, a funny sort of Protestant, but she is a Protestant and 
the only allies she's got are Protestants of the, the, the kind who saw Edward's church, this reformed church, as the, as the model that they wanted to follow. And so more or less, whether she wants it or not, that's the kind of church that she has to end up accepting. But she doesn't entirely like it. And that means that one or two traditional peculiarities hang on. It retains a, a rather conservative looking liturgy. She holds on to these peculiar establishment, the cathedrals, which don't really serve any purpose in the Reformed Church. Um, but they are, you know, their, their primary purpose really is musical and liturgical, and Elizabeth likes that kind of thing. But no, no um, slides. <laughs> No slides, um, Mary Curran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, she, you know, she, 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 she likes. You know, she, she's, she's got really rather sort of conservative and traditional aesthetic tastes. Um, and she's also, and this I mean, is a very monarchical um, opinion. She's determined to retain control of the church herself, rather than to let it become a properly freewheeling reformed church which elects its own leaders. Like a um, so she wants a yeah, no, no presbyteries because she wants to retain bishops. You know, the great thing about bishops is not only are they dignified and quasi-royal, like lords, but they're appointed by the queen. You know, they, they, this, is, this is about royal control. Um, and so England winds up with a, a church with an unquestionably reformed Calvinist settlement but one that's not properly finished um, and that means that in later generations it's possible for you know a, a, a new mood to emerge within parts of that this, this new entity which starts calling itself with you know, tremendous arrogance the church of england um that the new mood starts to appear in it who are saying well actually we're not just holding on to these conservative relics, bishops, cathedrals, the Book of Common Prayer, just because the Queen says so, but actually because we find real spiritual value in them. Um, that becomes one of the seeds of the, the conflict that we call the English Civil War in the in the 1640s, which is, is fought on a number of lines, but the, the, the religious dividing line between those who want to defend that settlement as it stands and those who want to push through to a, a, a fully reformed um, settlement you know, becomes one of the bitterest of them. Um, and it ultimately leads to the emergence of something that we can meaningfully call Anglicanism, um, which is a sort of cuckoo in the nest of the Church of England, which ends up taking over the, the whole thing and, and claiming its identity for itself. So is it is it right um, that during the time of Elizabeth, there's sort of um, theologians who oppose Calvinistic doctrine, but would consider themselves Protestants? So I'm thinking of people like Richard Hooker, for example. Um, it, are those, could you describe what those kind of sentiments are that um, and how, how they would differ? Sure. I mean, Hooker is 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 you know one of those people who's in subsequent history in Anglican identity has become this 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 sort of dominating figure. He's a, a bit more obscure in his own time, um, and you know his his 
great book the laws of ecclesiastical policy is is only part published before his death and in fact the, the the text of the remainder of it is is, is a bit problematic um you know he's writing mostly in the 1590s there are then a series of others this movement sort of beginning to gather strength in the um, in, in, in the following decades and in particular um under the first part of the reign of charles the first in the from, from 1625 onwards it really becomes dominant um and you're right these folks are are very clear that they are protestants um that you know they 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 would absolutely reject um you know any notion that they're they're crypto papists or anything of of, of, of that sort um and go out of their way to to Try and demonstrate their Protestant bona fides. Um, their argument, Hooker's argument, is explicitly that he represents a, 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 a true Protestant approach, and the, the people who come to be called Puritans, um, he sees as having distorted or exaggerated certain features of what what authentic Protestantism is. Um, so, I mean, there's the you know, Anglicanism later lays claim to this notion of being a kind of middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. In the early 17th century, that would have sounded like claiming to, to pursue a middle way between good and evil. It's just you know, it, 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 it's not a position anybody wants to, to lay hold of. There are one or two really daring folks amongst this movement who would claim to be pursuing a middle way between Rome and Geneva. Um, but that's in the sense that they would say that you know, the Genevan version of Protestantism is, 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 is distorted and erroneous. We're doing, we're doing it the right way. What are they actually substantially arguing about? Well, it's partly about, about royal authority, um, bishops versus presbyters, which is, is, is really about how, how independent and self-governing the church should be or how much it should accept royal authority. That's a very big deal for, for Hooker. Um, who's really concerned that many of these Puritan movements look seditious. The fact that they end up fighting a civil war against their king 40 years later, would have, he would have taken as an absolute vindication. Um, so a lot of this is just about power. But there are theological issues, more, more kind of um, core doctrinal issues in there as well, of which predestination becomes one of the, one of the biggest ones. Um, the Calvinist doctrine of, of predestination is kind of woven deeply into the structure of Calvinist theology. Um, it has a powerful both doctrinal and also pastoral logic behind it, but it's never been entirely stable or popular. Um, and in the wake of a similar dispute amongst Calvinists in the Netherlands about um, pro and anti-predestination, there's uh, an upsurge of anti-predestinarian thought in England, especially in the 1620s, and that becomes part of the, the doctrinal glue that holds this sort of diverse set of um, jurisdictional and also aesthetic claims together. You know, one of the other things that helps to define this movement is a you know, a, a real taste for dignified liturgy, for polyphonic music, um, for um, the, the, the the beautification of church furniture and, and, and so forth, which isn't 
a doctrinal issue in the same sort of way, but it's something that really you know, affects the day-to-day -day experience of, 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 of church life. And careers get made or broken over over this sort of thing, over whether you're going to be whether you're going to put up communion rails um, in, in 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 your church or not. About vestments, um, you know what what a, what a minister wears in order to to conduct um, con to conduct public worship. Um, many of these are issues which people on both sides admit are trivial in themselves, but they become symbolic of of, of, of the bigger disputes. So I don't know if this is a sort of appropriate point. It might be a, a bit of a kind of clunky change in pace, but I also, another the another one of the kind of broad topics that's a part of what it is to be a Protestant um, is kind of the establishment of America or even, you know, going back before it's known as America, you know, the kind of colonies mm -hmm. or even the kind of Catholic aspects of it. I, I wanted to talk about what has the influence of Protestantism been on early America? Um, I mean, it, it is actually very much part of the part of the same story. Um, you know, of course, the the European conquest and colonization of the Americas begins with the Catholic powers, with the Spanish and the Portuguese, um, and then the, the the French are a little way behind, trying rather less successfully to to, to make their way. Although actually, there are French Protestants involved very early on in that process, very unsuccessfully. Um, what what would they have been like Anabaptists or something? Or, no, um, uh, the, or these are French Huguenots. French Huguenots, okay, Calvinists, early on in the in, in French Wars of Religion, they make a couple of attempts to establish colonies in the 1560s, um, which are one of them fails largely on its own. The other one is found by the Spanish and destroyed. Um, but then the the English begin trying to make settlements in the. Americas from the the 1580s onwards, um, after you know, Francis Drake's round the world piracy expedition in in the, in the late 1570s, um, the Dutch are, are a little way behind on that. But actually, you know, partly because their their colonial ambitions are are much more widely spread than just North America. They're setting up colonies in, 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 in Brazil, in Southern Africa, and across large parts of Eastern Asia as well. Um, and to begin with, these colonies are largely you know, commercial and trade focused. And the, there's talk of, you know, oh, we're going to establish um, you know, Christ's true religion on this continent, which has been filled with, with Catholic idolatry. But they don't do a whole lot about it. Um, the real change in temper there comes with the, the so-called Pilgrim Fathers um, in, in 1520. Um, the, the foundation of the Plymouth Colony, which is the, you know, the beginning of, um, of New England. Um, and these folks are religious refugees. Um, and they've also got a commercial side to, 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 to what they're doing. But above all, these are, these are Puritans of one stripe or another, they're quite varied, who have found that the conservatism of the English church is no longer tolerable for them. Many of them had, in fact, already gone into exile in the Netherlands. Um, and then this option opens up for them to establish a an American colony. Um, and the way this 
I mean, the reason this is possible is because unlike the, the Spanish and the Portuguese, England um, does its colonization on the cheap. Um, it's not trying to, um, to establish you know, direct rule in these areas, but is effectively willing to allow commercial ventures that are self-funding and which accept English sovereignty to set themselves up more or less on their own terms. And if that includes a, at least a degree of religious self-government, then, then so be it. Um, and this is why the, the different colonies that spring up in, in North America during the, the 17th century each have their own distinct religious flavor. So you have you know, Anglican Virginia, um, Quaker Pennsylvania, um, Catholic Maryland, or at least Catholic-friendly Maryland, um, and then the the Congregationalist territories um, in in New England. And this initial rather small settlement in the in the 1620s, which is you know, struggling to survive at the very beginning. I mean, they lose half of their of, of, of their people over the first winter. They have no idea how to cope with a with a New England winter. You know, where there's, there's nothing like that um, in, in in Western Europe. Um, but then there's a, a much bigger surge of of refugees start coming across in the in the 1530s, tens of thousands. Um, of, of, of English Puritans who find that Charles I's regime is, is you know, really unacceptable to them and are, and are, and are seeking a haven. In, unacceptable in a religious sense. Unacceptable um, in a religious sense, yeah. That they're, like, they're, 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 they're being, being forced into uh, a choice between conforming to uh, a, a shifting church settlement, which they see as idolatrous, um, or choosing exile. Um, and especially now that the colony's set up, people have worked out how to survive these winters, at least to some extent. Um, you know that that prospect becomes much more appealing, and that leads to the creation of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, and um, John Winthrop, the first governor of that colony, makes this this now famous speech where he declares this colony to be a city on a hill. Um, it's pretty clear at the time that. I mean, the, these folks were not actually terribly interested in going to America as such. You know, it was just they needed somewhere to go, somewhere where they could be under English sovereignty, so they remained loyal English subjects, but also pursuing um, their, um, their, their, their their religion as they saw fit. There were other alternatives, and a number go to Ireland. Um, there's there's still the Netherlands, where of course they're foreigners, but you know, for a great many, um, and, and that decade, North America is is it. Um, the interest in really seeing America itself as having some spiritual significance um, comes kind of a generation later, um, especially after the the next great crisis for the American colonies, which is the English Civil War. Um, and you know now the, the the two great parties in England, the two religious parties, are at each other's throats, and the call goes out from Puritans in England to all these folks who've gone into exile: come back, we need you. Um, you know this this is you know, you 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 you've gone, you found your place of safety, but now's the time to to return home. 
Um, Oliver Cromwell is is of the view that the um, the New England colonies are, are are a distraction and a waste. You know, he he would would like all of the New Englanders to move either to Ireland or maybe to Jamaica, you know, somewhere where they could be more useful. Um, and a great many of them do, um, not so many to Jamaica, um, but you know, there's there's a, a big flow back um, eastwards across the Atlantic in the in the 1640s. Um, it's really only by natural growth, by the fact that these colonies, you know, people who settle there, um, become prosperous and have lots of children, um, that keeps the population rising over the over the mid 17th century. And that group start to discover an, a, a new set of spiritual meanings for this project. And when then with the restoration of the English monarchy in the in, in, in 1660 and the, the, the return to at least a degree of persecution of, of, of Puritans then, um, that meaning really hardens and and sticks and this sense of, of North America as a place with a distinct, you know, clearly English, but nevertheless distinct Protestant identity which can hold on to this kind of vision of purity that England has has failed to to, to, to reach really six. Um, and another you know important part of that is the conquest of the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam, um, of which which becomes renamed as New York uh, at, at the beginning of the 1660s. I only recently learned um, about Wall Street and the the reason that Wall Street being named Wall Street is because that's the wall at the edge of New Amsterdam. <laughs> in, indeed, um, and of course that brings in a, a, a really quite a big Dutch settler community, and these are Dutch Calvinists. Um, and they remain Dutch-speaking and Calvinistic you know, for, 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 for generations afterwards. So you've, you've now got this really very plural religious community in the, the different English colonies in America. Okay, in the South, they're mostly Anglicans. Um, but you know, from, from the Potomac northwards, uh, you've, you've got a, a much more eclectic group, varied not just between the colonies but within the colonies. Because you know the, the, the um, Dutch Reformed Calvinists of New Amsterdam get overlaid with a new Anglican establishment, um, and it pretty quickly becomes clear that this is a place with no religious majority. Um, and so when the colonies rise up in rebellion against their, their English governors in the 1770s, um, I mean, and this is, a, this is a secular conflict, there's, there's not really a, a, a strong religious element to it. Um, they very quickly latch onto the assumption that they are not going to pursue any kind of, of, of uniform religious settlement. Some, some of the colonies of what becomes states do have an establishment of religion within, within themselves. Um, but the, the assumption that there should be no religious establishment for the new United States as a whole um, is a, it's kind of woven in as a the, the compromise that everybody can accept because most of the religious communities are more afraid of somebody else trying to establish a, a, an establishment which is going to exclude them 
than they are ambitious to try to, to, to seize power in their own right. Um, and you also, of course, by then have got a, a significant group of, of you know, so-called deists, these folks of a, of a more skeptical enlightenment um, set of assumptions who see religious tolerance and pluralism as a, as a good thing in itself. Um, so you have this kind of odd alliance between the, 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 the skeptics and the really firm believers um, who can agree on one thing, which is the non-establishment of, 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 of religion. And then, of course, post the Civil War, that becomes devolved from the federal level to the state level as well. Um, by then, there, there are no longer states with established religions anyway. But you know, so you have this, this, this principle, which initially in the, um, in the First Amendment is set up as one for the federal government only and is then devolved down to the states and, and, and becomes spread much more much more thoroughly since. Um, of course, what began as this principle, which is, is there largely to protect religions from one another, to prevent any one of them securing a dominance that would um, would, would, would marginalize the, the others. Um, in in modern times, it's become much much more a principle about um, the place of formal religion within the public square at all, and so the, the the contours of that struggle have changed. And certainly, that kind of initial alliance between secularists and believers, um, well, obviously, has kind of broken down. So I suppose within this, um, and I think we've got about 15 more minutes to go just in terms of sure. you figuring out your timings and things for how you, how to respond to this. The The next thing that I also wanted to talk about was um, the slave trade, which involves obviously Britain and America and is, and is a very big sort of... Um, almost like a paradigmatic kind of moral case now you know if you if you talk to anyone it's kind of like um the argument about hitler you know anyone can kind of point to hitler as a a paradigmatic case of you're doing wrong if you can form some sort of analogy in some way and slavery is similarly one of those cases um so i wanted to talk a little bit about well firstly how is christianity sort of associated with that and how is it associated with both um justifications for slavery after the fact you know because you you mentioned the, the civil war in america and uh, but also how is it associated with people who are pushing you know to do away with slavery um and i suppose that's predominantly a british story first but yeah we can um yeah i mean it's a it's a, it's a you know, huge really important question um i, I mean you know, you're, you're you're absolutely right to emphasise the way that it's become in in modern times. You know, since the let's say the mid 19th century, uh, a kind of unquestioned touchstone of our of our ethical consensus. We don't need to debate whether slavery is legitimate or is is, is a good thing. We know the answer to that. But it's really important to understand that until you know, say the, the the late 18th century at the earliest, for most people, that's just not the case. Slavery is is one of those human phenomena that's a, a, a fact of life. It's it's sometimes compared to poverty in the sense that it's it's regrettable and nobody would want it for themselves, but it's just there. 
um, and you, you, you can't click your fingers and, 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 and wish it away. And there are a few voices, Quakers become some of the, some of the earliest of these, um, who, who begin to say, you know, not that slavery should be abolished, because that's a, a, a question so sort of big that it, it's, it's almost inconceivable. But who start to say we don't want slavery here in this particular place where we are. Um, we think it's wrong for Quakers to um, to, to hold slaves um, or to participate in the in, in, in the slave trade. That remains very much a marginal position. And by the by the time Protestants get seriously into it in the, the mid 17th century, the transatlantic slave trade is already a, a big um, dominant industrial concern um, with many many thousands of of Africans being shipped um, you know across the Atlantic to the Americas to form the the workforce initially of the the Spanish and the the Portuguese colonies and when the Protestant powers start to set up colonies of their own right initially in the Caribbean and then and, and on the American mainland um, they are buying into an industrial system, an economic system, which depends on slavery. Um, there are a number of attempts to set up Protestant colonies which don't use slavery. That's partly because of a, you know, a, a genuine distaste for, 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 for bonded labor, which you know, there's um, you know, quite a lot of evidence early on of of, of Protestants saying, you know, that we, we, we really don't like this. It, this is this is ugly. And also because of a distaste for filling these, um, you know, Protestant utopias that they're creating with a load of pagans. Um, you know, they, 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 they want religious purity and all these Africans, as far as they're concerned, represent impurity. So, you know, being opposed to slavery doesn't necessarily mean um, that you're embracing a kind of position that that you know would 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 look acceptable nowadays, and all of these attempts to create a slave-free colonial system fail, um, and they fail you know, really for economic reasons because it's very hard to compete with a workforce which doesn't need to be paid and who can be worked literally to death. Um, the colony of Georgia becomes one of the most earnest and serious attempts found in the mid 1730s to try to create a colony which is going to run without slavery um, for the a mixture of, of, of reasons that I that I talked about. Um, and after 15 years, the, the governors of the colony have to give in. They just cannot make the economics of the place work. And there are slave traders knocking on their door willing to, 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 to sell them people who they can who they can buy and you know, make their their system pay for itself in a way that they just otherwise could not so for for most of the 18th century slavery just seems like a ghastly fact of life um, and the primary concern for Protestants at least for those Protestants who allow themselves to think about this as a problem and that is not terribly many of them. It's best to just try and forget about it as far as many of them are concerned. The primary concern is not 
how do we get rid of slavery? Because that seems just, you know, inconceivable and it would mean destroying the economic basis of their, their whole societies. Um, but how can we make it more civilized? Um, and in particular, how can we Christianize these people? Um, and there are many hand-wringing debates back and forth against that, which all founder on essentially the same problem, which is that the slaveholders themselves are mostly, there are a few exceptions, um, staunchly opposed to attempts to make Christians of the people that they have enslaved. Um, partly because there are residual fears that um, enslaved people who are baptized will try to claim their freedom on that basis, although it quickly becomes pretty clear there's no legal basis for them to do so. Um, but more, I mean, it's, it's hard to get away from the, the sense that they worry that enslaved people who become Christians will learn ideas of spiritual equality and start asserting their their dignity in those terms, even if it means something as as, as minimal as demanding um, time off to to attend worship on Sunday, um, and also wanting to learn to read so that they can read the Bible and the idea of slave literacy is one that the slave owning classes find deeply threatening because they're well aware that they're in a society where literacy is, is one of the primary routes for accessing power. Um, in, in many slave societies, it is a, a crime for um, an enslaved person to attempt to learn to read or for a free person to try to teach an enslaved person to read. It's so crazy. Um, but, you know. uh, uh, well, it's. I mean, I understand the rationale behind yeah, it. I, mean, I, I wouldn't say it's crazy. It's got a. It, 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 it's got a kind of ironclad logic to it. Yeah. It's. It's. It, it, it's horrible. But that's. That's. Yeah. That's. Yeah. Else. That's what. Yeah. Um, then quite suddenly, in the fifth, in the seventeen seventies, and in particular in the seventeen eighties, there's. A, a, a real sea change, especially in England, although it's, it's, it's paralleled in some parts of the, of the newly independent American colonies, um, when you know, this, these repeated attempts to try to, to civilize or, or, or sort of beautify the slave process are understood to have failed. Um, and uh, this, the demand that initially the slave trade itself, rather than slavery as such, should be um, should be abolished moves very quickly from the margins to the mainstream, um, and it's been I think convincingly argued that the 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 key thing that makes that possible is American independence, um, for two reasons. One, because um, within the British Empire, uh, the removal of the American colonies means that a major pro-slavery lobby no longer has to be placated. Um, you've still got the slaveholders in the Caribbean, but without their, their, their mainland allies, they're much less powerful. Um, but the other reason is that the fact of defeat by the, the rebellious American colonies in, in, in the 1770s and early 80s, which is a real shock to the, to the British establishment. You know, they, they do not expect um, this, this, this bunch of 
jumped up colonials to, to be able to, to fight off the, the might of the British Empire. And okay, they have French help, but even so. Um, and so naturally, the question that good Protestants begin asking themselves is, if we have faced this catastrophe, that's a judgment from God. We're being punished for something. What might it be? And slavery starts to look like the kind of national crime for which they're being judged. And there's a couple of, of really high profile, ghastly scandals um, in, in the early 1780s, which then the small group in England who have been trying to raise awareness of what's actually going on in the slave trade. Um, uh, some of them, you know, white English folks, but also a crucial voices for a, a handful of former enslaved people who managed to acquire their liberty by one means or another and have, have become really articulate spokespeople um, for, for for the abolitionist cause. They they succeed in raising awareness and and producing this you know tremendously powerful abolitionist movement, really almost from, from nowhere. Of course, it's one thing to produce a mass movement, it's another thing for, another thing for it actually to succeed. Um, the, the campaign against the slave trade in Britain is fought out in, in Parliament and in the public square for, for, for over 20 years before it find, that the act is finally passed in 1807. Um, you then don't have um, abolition of actual slavery in the British Empire until the, the end of the 1830s. Um, and there's a, a comparably slow process in, in, in most of the other imperial settings. The final abolition of slavery anywhere in the Atlantic world is in Brazil in 1888. Um, of course, the best known one um, is is the way it plays out in the United States, which where it ultimately produces the the, the, the crisis of the Civil War. It, it's a very unusual case that one. In every other jurisdiction where slavery is abolished, it's a deal that's made between a, a government that eventually says no, this has got to stop, and a relatively small, wealthy slaveholding elite who are resisting it. And in each case, the way it's resolved is that the slaveholders are bought out. Um, they are financially compensated for the loss of their property. Um, it's still not and, money paid to the slaves, notably. And, uh, yeah. uh, no, no. I mean, no, nobody even thinks of the possibility of compensating the enslaved people for what had happened to them. Um, whereas in the United States, of course, nobody is compensated. Um, and and um, instead, as, as, as Lincoln famously puts it, the price is paid in blood. Um, and when slavery is abolished, it's that, that abolition is enforced at gunpoint, effectively, onto the, onto the defeated southern states. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering when we're looking at the, at the legacies of, of, slavery, both religious and secular across the whole Atlantic world, how exceptional the American experience is in those and in many other ways. Um, one of the other key differences being that by the time slavery is abolished in most other jurisdictions, it was already failing as an economic 
system. And so the, the, the wind is behind the abolitionists in those sense. Whereas um, American slavery, based as it was around cotton, was economically thriving. Um, and you know, in, 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 indeed, the, the slave population was, was, the enslaved population was growing. Uh, so, you know, I'm not generally a fan of, 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 of American exceptionalism in, in, in many ways. I think you know, the, the United States is, is, is much more closely woven into the, the rest of the world than it sometimes likes to, to think. But in this case, the American experience really is unusual. Um, and the experience of formerly enslaved populations in, in the Caribbean and in, in many other parts of the Atlantic world shouldn't be too quickly analogized to, to those that, 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 that emerge in the United States. Great. Um, so thank you for answering all those questions. I had one, um, I lost, oh, there it is. I had one question that someone put across earlier um, in a super mm -hmm. chat. So I just wondered if you could quickly answer this and then I'll let you go. Um, Garid Dasin asks, uh, my eventual question for Prof. Ryrie, what is his take on the fascinating Pierre Bale whose dictionary was read so many ways by different readers. Um, could you say you. what it is for those of us who... Sure, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good question and not um, one that deserves a longer answer than I'll be able to, to, okay. to, to give it now. Pierre Bale was a, a, a French Protestant, French Huguenot, um, who in the 1690s published a, um, uh, his, his philosophical dictionary, you know, one of a, a, a series of works he, he produced in that. Generation, um, which make him one of the uh, heralds of what comes to be called the radical enlightenment, um, the the more kind of skeptical um, anti-religious establishment um, wing of that movement. There's a real debate about Bale whether he's uh, you know, he, he has been called and claimed as an atheist. Um, and I, I suspect this may be the debate um, that, that the question's referring to. Um, he never admitted um, to his to, 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 to being an atheist and always laid hold of this this, this, this claim to be a um, to be a Huguenot to be a Protestant. Um, but it's certainly clear that he's he's not a not not a very orthodox. Um, uh, Protestant. For myself, I'm inclined, and I'm here following the, the, the line taken in, I think, a really compelling book by Dominic Erdezain called The Soul of Doubt, that was published what, five, six years ago now, um, who, who I think makes a very convincing case that Bale is a sincere and convinced Protestant Christian but one who finds his doctrine centered much more around the the ethical example of Jesus rather than around um, Protestant doctrine as it's as it's traditionally formulated. Um, and in that sense, he's in a strand of radical Christian critique of conventional Christian orthodoxy, which to some extent goes back to, to, to Luther himself. You know, the, 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 the trick, the um, uh, idea of using um, 
Jesus as a way of critiquing Christianity is hardly an original, Christianity as it's practiced is hardly an, an original one. I mean, it's a kind of perennial Christian move. Um, but, but the radical strand within which Bale stands, and I mean, he uses this to argue firmly, um, in particular for religious toleration and against religious coercion of any kind, um, which you know, becomes one of his, one of his really, really decisive issues. Um, not a controversial issue amongst Christians nowadays, at the time very much was. Um, that sort of, of structure at the time looked atheistic. I think the case that he saw it as a profoundly and necessarily authentically Christian um, understanding um, is pretty strong. Whether he as a result, ended up giving comfort to and creating room for the kind of atheisms that would go on to emerge over the over the following centuries. I think you could make a strong case for that as well. Awesome. Well, thanks for answering. I know we've got a little bit over time there. Um, in terms of the content of the last interview that we did in this one, the book is Protestants, the Radicals that Made the Modern World, if people want to go and check that out. I think, is it more recently you also did an Atlas of Christianity? Is that a... that's 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 right and i mean for the stuff about bail i'm more drawing on another book i did recently called unbelievers um, right which is about, you know, the, the, yeah an emotional history of doubt that was yeah. yeah um and then is there any, anything else that you'd want to promote obviously the great um gresham lecture series that you've got out there i think there's a dedicated yeah there's going to be another one of those starting at the, the the first one will the first one of the next series is going to be on the 22nd of september Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for watching um, and I will end it there. If you want to hang around for a second, I'm just going to play the closing credits and then that'll be it. Thanks.